Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. You see I remembered the show's name this time. I'm here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. How have you been since we last spoke, Michael? Fantastic. Okay, so what we've got today, Beacon Hospital, mandatory quarantines, England and its vaccine supplies. But I suppose we'll start right into it on the um, on the English vaccines, probably, Michael. Yeah, let's, let's call this a good news story. This, this is a good news story. This came out in the Sunday Times today. Obviously, it's only the Sunday Times at the minute. They could be wrong. This is the British edition of the Sunday Times, not the, the Irish one. But what they are saying is that the British government has accepted that they will offer COVID jabs to Ireland, to the Republic of Ireland. Now, the way they're selling this is that they're worried that our lower vaccination rate will lead to a greater potential of another wave of the country, of the virus in their country, because people will come over the border from Ireland and it will spread it. But the long and the short of it is, if the Sunday Times is right, they are planning to give us 3.7 million COVID vaccines, which is you know, better to have them than not have them. Listen, uh, I think it's great stuff. Um, it was interesting when we... we when the story broke that there was this uh, the response from Boris on the last that what we don't know but appeared to be some kind of inquiry from the Irish government regarding extra vaccines and the, well we have to vaccinate our own people first rather than cold children uh, which was being put down um, we believe to very heavy in, inside baseball story here but a heavy spinning out of the public eye by people who are pissed off by the Irish position post-Brexit, particularly the comments consistently being made by Coveney. Now, we had noticed, uh, and we chatted about this, I don't know if we talked about it online, but after that came, there was a whole, there was quite a flurry of, shall we say, counterspin. Um, a number of people who had been, shall we say, would be seen as being hibernophiliacs in Britain were 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 pushing back against this. They kept the they kept the pressure up spinning. We saw a number of comments from prominent unionists in the north and others saying, you know, we really need a one island strategy here. We're facing into a possibility where we're going to be hitting very high levels of vaccination, but we're going to be we're going to be sharing a border with a country which has very low levels, and that doesn't really work. We need everybody vaccinated, so. There was a sense that, you know, it, the story mightn't be over. Part of the other side of that story is, as Barton said, you know, we have to get everybody done. As we've been saying, Gary, the numbers the UK has been hitting in the last couple of weeks has been tr tremendous. Their daily, their daily totals. In a day, they've been doing more than we have done since we started our vaccination program. It's It's been fantastic. At the minute... I mean, all of the elderly are done. Most of those, actually, I think all of those underlying conditions have also been done. At least those underlying conditions deemed to be of high risk. They're saying that they will have all over 40s done by Easter. So when exactly these shipments will happen, or when they could happen, is obviously up in the air. Because they're saying they don't want to share them before they've got the vulnerable protected and everyone who needs to be protected. Once they have... I mean, everyone over 40 vaccinated by the uh, by Easter at that point. I mean, that is that is the vulnerable done, really. Yeah, because remember, 
if you're doing people, everybody over the age of 40, anybody who was in a vulnerable group, even if they're under 40, will have been done as well already anyway. I mean, over 50 would be gen was generally regarded as kind of the target. Over 50 and vulnerable underlying with uh, comorbidities or underlying conditions. So um, we, we don't know. And maybe we, sh we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here. They're talking about 3.7 million, was that the number, I think, in the article? 3.7 million. No. The fact is, obviously, if they arrived in the door and gave us 3.7 million vaccines, yeah, great. It'd be fantastic. But we're, it, it, that, that's not going to happen. But you know what? We, we couldn't use them anyway. But if they were to drop 100,000 a week, maybe going up to 150,000 in, in another few weeks, that would be transformative. That could that would put us in a position to really ramp the thing up to such a state that we could we could knock months off the point at which we, we have actually succeeded in protecting all of the vulnerable and get to the point where we're at over 50s or even over 40s and seriously be in a position to start to look at the the roadmap out if in, in that case and you know what let's again another good news story um as regards our capacity to do that one of the days last week we hit over twenty thousand in one day i think gary didn't we twenty one thousand on wednesday nearly twenty two thousand i think we were actually you know less than a hundred off that which was the highest we've ever done that's the highest we've ever done so if we can do twenty two thousand i mean that means that we have the capacity grosso modo, without doing anything new, potentially, of hitting 150,000 a week. You know, presumably that if we, with extra, with extra, with extra supply and extra effort, and we know that the HSE is looking to get more people involved. They already have 11,000, I think, vaccinated strains. They're getting another, they're looking for another 2,800. They're trying to expand the delivery. They're op they're looking at opening up new centres to provide vac new vaccination centres uh, as we have the capacity to deliver the vaccines. So that is indicative that if we do have the vaccines, we could we could get them out there. We don't want to, as I said, I said we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. But if there, if the, if there are even a few hundred thousand in the short term available, that would be really, really great and would make a, make a severe difference. I have to imagine, Gary, there are people out there who are carefully ex looking at this particular gift house in the mouth and are going to send are considering that we should send this horse back because we don't like the look of it yeah i i have seen of course because of course when the times was briefed on this they were also specifically briefed that while this was good politics and made sense and you know they could present it well it was also a deliberate poke in the eye of brussels and could disrupt eu unity because the great thing about it is when you're giving 3.7 million vaccines, you can pretty much say whatever you want. But I have seen people who are like, you know, we should stand in solidarity and tell them we don't want their vaccines. You can stand in solidarity and say, you don't want the vaccines, but you can fuck off and stay at home, mate. I want their vaccines. I take yours too. I did see a comment by Hugh O'Connell of The Independent responding to this, uh, and he said that, from his sources, the Irish government was completely unaware of any offer from Britain to offer vaccines, to which the Sunday Times news editor in Ireland, Colin Coyle, responded, yes, that's why they call it news. <laughs> now, of course, they could be wrong, but this is a big claim to make if you can't back it up. Yeah, particularly when they're quoting a cabinet minister. 
Yes, they do quote a cabinet minister as saying that, look, Easter will be when we, we can start offering the vaccines. Now, of course, Michael, nothing has been said publicly. Issues may come up. Simon Coveney may find a way to fuck this up. I was just about to say Simon Coveney may have a couple of speeches to make yet. You know what, Gary? You, there's a there's a, tr- a tradition across uh, cr- uh, Eastern and Western Christianity of uh, people going into silent retreat for the week before Easter. Uh, you know, I I think that Simon he's been working hard. It's a stressful time. All of the Brexit stuff. You know, I think for Simon to go away on a silent retreat for the next week or so might be a really a good thing for Simon. And a good thing for the country. I hope the British require as a condition for giving the vaccines that Simon Coveney give them a photo up of a handshake of the movement over. <laughs> on, the, you know, on the ground at Dublin Airport as the vaccines arrive in. With a big Union Jack on the side, you know. <laughs> a gift for the British people. <laughs> you know those old, you know those photographs you see? Oh, you know, aid from America going to the third world will be stamped you know, on the crates, you know, a gift from the American people, that kind of thing. There are, of course, people who will say that we shouldn't do things because that would look desperate and we need to keep our self-respect. And I think, I think those people need to be listened to. Those people can be rounded up and put in some sort of colony somewhere and they can be left to their own devices. <laughs> yes. Gary, seriously though, I mean, do you think that somebody who said these, the people who are saying this and writing this, are they actually, I mean, are they in any sense serious about this? Or is this just shite shit posting? Is it just not? I mean, when you sit down and think, well, yeah, we could anticipate vulnerable people getting it that aren't going to get it maybe for weeks, and we could avoid the death of 20, 30, 50, 100 people, you know, who knows? We don't know. But that's worth it. That's worth keeping our dignity and maintaining our loyalty to the, to the great European idea. I mean, does anybody really seriously in their hearts believe that that isn't anything just the piocious nonsense? Absolutely, because it's never their lives. It, there's a bit of a stench of some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, of course, if it ever is them, the tune will change pretty quickly. Like, I know a couple of the people who have been most outraged about the Beacon Hospital, and I've seen them be publicly outraged. One or two of them, I know, got vaccinated up the north because they had worked for the, uh, they'd worked in the UK for a period. They haven't mentioned that publicly, but they're very animated about queue jumping, Michael. Oh, that, no, no, that's Max of Hip. Hypocrisy. And the one thing you know that I can't stand, Gary, is hypocrisy. What I found really interesting about their public statements and anything they put on social media is it all looks okay, but when you know that they've been vaccinated up the north, you start to suddenly realise that what they're actually saying is very carefully constructed. <laughs> Just in case. So that if something did come out, then, you know, you could say, well, I never actually said that. And nothing ever quite goes far enough that, let's say, if a media source had that information, that they might see that you'd written something and go, okay, now it's in the public interest to publish. Yeah, now you have just, you've just stepped that little bit too far and we're going to go ahead and publish this and make you feel very, very silly and all embarrassed. But speaking of the Beacon Hospital, Michael. Speaking of, yes. For those who haven't heard, the Beacon Hospital is in a bit of trouble. Not a lot of trouble, and trouble of a very specific type, because this is Ireland. 
And even if they had, like, shot 20 children, they would still only be in a limited amount of trouble. But what happened was they administered 20 vaccines to the teachers of a school, which it later turned out the children of the director of the Beacon Hospital uh, go to. So effectively 20 vaccines, two teachers in his children's school. You know, hold on, just to be fair, maybe a little bit more context. It's not that they just took 20, they went into the fridge, slipped 20 out and said, okay, I'm taking these down to Bray. They had been giving vaccines out. And for reasons that are a little unclear, but may have maybe to do with double booking uh, within the HSC, they had 200 no-shows. So they had, they had, and they had prepared a certain number of vaccines. And you have to pre-prepare these things. They're fiddly. Um, our colleague, David Quinn, was saying his, his wife was doing this like with Pfizer, and you have to pre-prepare them the night before, and you have to get the needles and get the titrates and all that. So they were there, and they had to be used. They got on, they got the list out and saw, and, and managed to get 180 uh, people in to be vaccinated that were according to the, to the list. So we're now down to 20 vaccines. And that's the point at which the story begins. Yes. So the decision was made to give those to that particular school. Now, the Beacon are saying that they accept that this went against the HSE's guidelines on this, but this was a matter where there was a time limit and they needed to make a choice, so they made one. And then the shit kind of hit the fan pretty quickly after that. And people just people are just assuming that this is a stroke. And it may have been, may have been something the Beacon, not planned, but took advantage of, the director of the Beacon. But no evidence has really been offered for that. So it could be they got to the end of the day, they had 20 vaccines left, they decided to give it to a school, and rather than trying to call a load of schools outside of business hours, he had the number of the principal of the school his children go to, which is actually relatively normal with private schools, and he just called them and got them down. And a school which would be not as close as there are lots of other schools which are closer to the beacon, but it's worth it's pointing out it's like fifteen kilometers away. So it's 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 what on the on the on the M50 down there is it's, it's hardly even a ten minute drive. So it is close by. There is a serious accusation there that someone effectively diverted vaccines to something that was personally beneficial to him. On the other hand, that has not been shown. There could be perfectly legitimate reasons for it, but no one cares. It's just assumed that this is some sort of thing. And the situation itself, I actually didn't find that interesting. Didn't really pay much attention to it. The government response to it, on the other hand, is aggravating. Donnelly comes out and announces that in, well, he wants the CEO of the Beacon to be sacked. The board has to take this into account. Fine, that's his, he can say that. But he announces that he wants the HSE to suspend vaccinations in the Beacon. Well, first, first they said that wouldn't happen. Then they started getting more media pressure about it. Then they decided that he wanted it suspended. And now it looks like it has been suspended. Why? What does this achieve? What good does this do? At, like, at the worst, what's happened here? 20 vaccines were effectively misappropriated or misdistributed. To teachers? To teachers, not to the board of directors of the hospital or to their the, 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 the chaps that they play golf with or their wives' bridge partners, but 20 teachers in Gerrards and Bray. I mean, people are talking about it as if it was an elite school, but it's in Bray. If that was the case, should there be some penalty? 
Maybe. But if there is, it should be made against the person who made the decision. Because then they're actually suffering because of their decisions and there is some equilibrium. What's happened by stopping the entire vaccination program in the Beacon, the only people that hurts are the public. I, I don't get it. I don't get what this is, a, is to achieve. If you were concerned about distribution, then step in and ensure that distribution is correct. But keep the program going because they're saying that, well, people will just go to other vaccination centres. I don't think they can do this without disruption. A week ago or so, they announced, even against the advice of the WHO and the EMA, that they were going to suspend uh, vaccinations with AstraZeneca. And that caused a certain amount of disruption, considerable disruption. And then until... And even when they agreed that they were going to start, they said it would take. They were going to start using it again. It was going to take a certain number of days before they could re- rejig the system and people could be rebooked and get back in. Now they're going to close the centre down, and this isn't going to cause disruption. I, I don't see how it's not going to cause some disruption. I, I don't see what this. This is surely this is the vain person looking in the mirror, disliking their face, and saying, "All right, bring me a knife. I'm taking my. I'm taking my nose off. That'll teach my face." What is this? What sense has this? It's just simply a, re- a response to a mass, a massive amount of flurry in the media, and particularly in social media. I would be curious to know, maybe I, I'm completely off the wall here, and I'm perfectly willing to... I am enormously un, unexercised by this story. 20 teachers got it. Well, they should, there are other people. I, you know, there was, there's a certain time timeline. The easy thing was he picked up the phone, he got got hold of he got hold of the principal and he knew the principal would have access would be able to get on to the certain number of teachers very quickly and they get them in because they were they were they were nearby rather than trying to find the numbers of schools and then you get to school you're not going to get the principals because everybody's got to be gone home how are you going to find them you're going to waste time and you're going to end up going what what was I suppose part of this is we know, for, I don't know if we talked about it online, there have been incidents, and I, I have been told this by doctors, where, I'm not talking about very large numbers, but where at the end of days, because of cancellations or no-shows or whatever, there, there have been vaccines left over. And rather than, because this is not the first time there have been questions regarding what happens with vaccine, rather than give the vaccines to, to people, the vaccines have been just quietly disposed of. And the reason given, we don't listen. Nobody will ever know we did this. And if some, if, if we give it to the wrong person, somebody finds out, then we're going to be in a shit storm, and we just don't need to do that. Now it seems to me that if we're going to incentivize by a massive overreaction of this kind to people saying, you know, rather than actually make a decision in a time limited situation that we're actually going to vaccinate human beings, rather than pour these things down the sink, I think that's just a bad choice. There is a lot happening here. And at the speed we're moving things and the numbers we're doing things, decisions are going to be made which may not look optimal afterwards. Like you're not going to administer millions upon vaccines and get it perfect. No. So I no, I I, I can see a lot of the media getting very angry about this story. And I'm just like, lads, if you care about twenty vaccines so much, there are some very interesting things happening with the vaccination programme in total. That you may find spectacularly unpleasant. But that to me is, is the core of actually my reaction. The more I, I, I read tweet after tweet after posting after posting about this, and so much of this just stank of resentment because they were, they were being given to teachers who teach in a middle class children in, in a private school. That was what was driving it. That was the real thing. Now, if 
there was more activity and acrimony and anger about these 20 vaccinations, Gary, than I have seen in the last two months about the whole vaccination rollout in the procurement system. And that makes me angry. I mean, this this is the, the fact that fucking teachers and Gerards and Bray got, 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 got vaccinated is exercising these people more than the total ballsing up of the procurement system, the refusal of the government to take responsibility for the failure of the EU to do it and then to go out and to do it and protect their citizens themselves. That has become, that didn't make people angry, but this, this is what's going to bring the temple down. If we're talking about mistakes that we could get angry about, why did they have 200 spare vaccines? Because the HSE bollocksed it up and effectively booked hundreds of people into multiple hospitals at the same time. That's a basic thing that should not go wrong at this stage. It simply should not happen. And beyond that, if we want to get excited about exactly where vaccines are going, the HSE has vaccinated a great deal of staff, Michael. Do not run into the public and are not, shall we say, absolutely essential to the running of those services. And they're not doing 20 of those people. You're talking about thousands upon thousands of vaccines. I see people's point that if there was a deliberate attempt to enrich oneself by allowing queue jumping of people you were familiar with, there should be a punishment for it, obviously. Look, Gary, enriched. You're not. He, he, nobody's getting enriched. What he's at at the worst, what he's done is, he's he has done something in order to put himself in good odour with the principal of the school where his child goes to school. He's done him a turn, and he has therefore built up a certain amount of capital with the principal in the school. As far as I know, nobody's suggesting that that there was that, that notes changed hands. There were no brown envelopes. I mean, to it was he did he did someone a turn, and that's his hope, which he may he may think will will be worthwhile down the road, for some in some sense he'll be able to get, I don't know maybe his son will get on the second fifteen or something, or he, I I whatever it is that you get from principal of a school where your child goes that's something that you want maybe he'll get he'll he'll be in a better better position to get that. But in, even the word "enrich," I think, is is not appropriate. Whatever it is, he he'll have done something to his benefit. Yes, that may be the case. He have done, he made a choice knowing that this he, a benefit would accrue to him. Yes, that's the sense I'm using it in. And beyond that, Michael, if he did do someone a turn, shouldn't he be punished? There is there is an order to this that is meant to be abided to. If instead of seeking out 20 people who would have abided by the order in which they're meant to be done, he decided to do someone a favour, shouldn't there be a punishment for that, for someone deciding to do that? There should be consequences, yeah. But before that, we should establish that it was done in such, and it, that it was done in a way where something else which was more appropriate, which would follow the which would follow the regulations or the recommendations, which could have been done within the time limit, was not done. And if you if we can establish that he deliberately jumped over uh, options or possibilities which were part of the recommendations of the process of how to deal with exit with leftover vaccines, and he made he deliberately chose to do that, and then made this choice, uh, and then he he did something which was wrong. 
again, I, I'm not trying to be quibbly here, but the word punishment seems a big word here. Then again, you could say, well, it's a very serious thing. It's 20 vaccines. We're talking about people losing their lives. That it may be that you're talking about somebody who not getting a vaccine who would have otherwise got a vaccine, and therefore they're, and, and, who, and that puts them in a continued peril or danger it puts them at risk which they would not otherwise have been and that has to be that's a very serious thing what that would what what that would look like i don't know i mean is it theft well in in some countries it would be classed as a very specific type of theft in ireland i have no idea what the legal situation is i know you've got politicians saying his position is untenable that he has to resign that's a matter for the board it's a private hospital it's going to do what it wants on this, and that can't be forced. If it was the case where something like that had happened, and there is a law that would cover it, yeah, notify them. Notify the guards. Let them have a look. If something comes up and they can show some sort of malfeasance, or whatever, fine, they can do it. But there's just been a lot of assumption that that is the case. If they can establish that there was... Okay, we're quibbling about the language that there was in this was done on the basis of an expectation of a quid pro quo and that he he ignored other possibilities or other choices which were available to him within the time limit well then there should be consequences for that no i don't not that there was quid pro quo but he did this perhaps on the basis of this the expectation but he was doing this for a reason that it would in some way accrue to his benefit but the most important thing is that he deliberately chose to ignore other possibilities which were on the table in front of him, which were part of the guidelines and the recommendations. And he deliberately chose to ignore those. And those and those were choices he could have made within the time available to him, that they were practicable, but he deliberately chose to ignore those to go to do this. Well, then that would be something which would require... I mean, I, I think the, the way this should have been handled was simply notification of that. You investigate it. If he can give a reason, he gives a reason. If you can't give a reason, you forge to the guards and you see if there's an applicable law. You don't stop the entire vaccination program in the hospital because, again, that only hurts the public. You are limiting the country's capability to administer vaccination. And then to come out, as Stephen Donnelly did and talk about how this is the most important public health project of you know our lives and we've got to put everything behind it and the actions of the beacon undermine trust in it i find that a little bit hard to swallow at the minute because there's a little bit of if what you say is true and you legitimately believe all these things why aren't you doing better yourself like if it's that important to protect these things and to ensure trust and integrity why don't you apply that standard to yourself also how is the rollout of the vaccine to vulnerable people going to be helped by stopping people being vaccinated in the beacon how does this punish the beacon? How does this punish the man who did this? I I don't I don't see, I don't see that this is this is some terrible consequence for the beacon or some terrible consequence for the man who made this decision. But but leaving aside, even assuming assuming he did what he did and it was wrong and it was it was bad and there are laws and the laws are applicable and all that. I and and even we cart him off to to to, to Mount Joy for five years. Grand. I still don't see how closing the closing down the vaccination centre of the Beacon helps that or 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 punishes him. 
it's a punishment for actions that doesn't actually seem to in any way impact on the person you say is responsible. It's just grandstanding. And it may be grandstanding on the basis that he, he suspects, I don't know, purely speculating myself here, he may think, well, there's nothing we can do to him, or the chances are we won't be able to do much to him. So, but I have to do something. I have to do, I have to, I have to make a gesture. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop them doing this. And that makes no sense. It's got a great stench of weakness off it. So he comes out and he says, we're, you know, it's terrible, we'll look into it, but we're not going to do much beyond that. Then the media keeps coming around, and then you feel you have to do something. But you, you're you not in a great position, so you just do something you think makes you look decisive and strong. When you actually look at it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's, But I think it's coming from a minister who is vulnerable, deeply vulnerable at the minute. Do you ever see that people who aren't in a position of strength themselves don't have a great ability to gauge what a strong reaction is, and they seem to think that just doing, just throwing force at stuff is a display of strength? Kind of get that off this. Can't really do anything. Don't have control over a lot of stuff. But I can do this. And the fact it's not smart or well-advised or likely to have any positive impact or any negative impact on the people I think have done something wrong doesn't matter. It's just a display of strength for the media that kind of falls apart if you touch it. Well, we should... uh, I'd be curious to see how... if we have any stories about the the follow-up to this and the speed and success at which the people who are supposed to be vaccinated in the Beacon are immediately and carefully reallocated to other sources and don't have any hold-ups... A health service which is double booking hundreds of people months into you know, the most important public health uh, program in our lifetime, Michael, which, as Stephen Donnelly said, it's absolutely integral that we maintain trust in. A health service that can double book hundreds of people on a weekly basis is absolutely going to be able to handle the knocking out of one of its vaccination centres without any issue. It'll be seamless. We were talking about mandatory quarantines the last podcast. More more accurately, we were mocking mandatory quarantines heavily and the racial undertones of those mandatory quarantines in Ireland. And a couple of people reached out and said, you guys kind of mocked it very heavily, but didn't actually explain why it wouldn't work and why it was worth mocking. And that is an absolutely fair point, And we should have at the time, but we will do it now. So no more mocking? Well, no, no, let's not make those kind of promises. When you look at mandatory quarantine, and this is why it won't work in this sense, what they're doing is they are using mandatory quarantine and they're saying it is to keep out particular variants of COVID from Ireland and that the countries that they have put on the list are those that they suspect this variant is in. That is of questionable truth. I think, to be honest, we took a lot of it from the British lists and assumed if they were on the British lists, then they were fine for the Irish lists. So some of the places on that um, the quarantine list, Michael, do not have direct flights to Ireland at all. At all. And this kind of goes into the problem with it. If you want to ensure those variants stay out of Ireland, you would need to have mandatory quarantine effectively from just a blanket policy, a mandatory quarantine which you would then start approving countries to avoid that on a case-by-case basis. So effectively the opposite of what we've done. And the reason that you'd have to do it that way is because 
If you are in one of these countries and you simply drive to another and fly into the country, that's fine. As long as you don't say you came from a, a listed country, then you're fine. You still need all of your, your negative test and all of that sort of stuff, but you won't be required to quarantine even though you came from that. You came from a country where you should be required to quarantine. And most of these countries, Michael, are in Africa and South America. And particularly in Africa, very easy to go to a different country. You might be shocked to hear that, Michael. Many, many countries in Africa. And in fact, in, in some of those countries, because there's no direct flight, you would need to go to another country. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm speculating here uh, that there may not be direct flights to Dublin from uh, Eswantini. I'd also like uh, to wonder, I'm also wondering the number of people out there listening to this who know where Eswantini is. The way they've done it will cut down a certain degree of the risk of particular variants. But if you, want, if you were serious about actually keeping those variants down, you would go blanket uh, mandatory quarantine and then case by case green lights effectively for particular countries. I think the, the list we have created is largely based on the British list and also is heavily political. The countries, for the most part, we have put mandatory quarantine in place for are countries that can't complain about us having done so. Or if they did complain, wouldn't really care that much. It's hard to imagine that Cape Verde is going to have much swing at a diplomatic level. Doesn't really impact on us at all. I wonder how many people from Cape Verde have ever come to Ireland. I can't imagine these are massive threats. But anyway, go on. So that's the reason I thought it was. I think it was is so worth mocking. It's partially the racial makeup, which I think is mostly based on the British, and as I said, quite political. But also because it's not, it does not do what they or can't do, what they say it is meant to do. It's sort of a weird halfway house where they very clearly didn't want to go for full mandatory quarantine on everyone because that would be quite difficult to swing with certain countries and there would be there would be business implications for it, things like that. But they also felt that they had to do something. So instead of doing something effective, they did this. So will it reduce the risk of variants coming in from those countries? Maybe. Is it robust enough to actually stop them? No, it's not. It's nowhere near it and it doesn't look like it was designed to do it. And... That, I think, is, is pretty much the long and the short of it. It, it can't do what they say it's, it's meant to do. And it doesn't look like it was designed to do it, to begin with. Now, having said that, that quarantine, uh, mandatory quarantine system came into place on Friday at 4am, I think. By Saturday, Michael. So, the first full day of, the, of it, three people had escaped from quarantine. <laughs> absconded, escaped, left. There's quite a bit of debate about the correct verb we should use here. Yes, there were phrases like, the guards are looking for them, and occasionally people said things like, the military may also be looking for them, which I think puts you strongly into escape category. Yeah, somebody said, yeah, when the report says the army are now looking for, there has a strong feeling of escape to it. I remember when I was, before I wrote all the, the zero leak things, when I could get ISAG people to pick up the phone to me. I had been talking to Tomas Ryan about mandatory quarantine. Basically, the deal with it under the zero COVID proposals is very strict mandatory quarantine, and the country is pretty much open internally. And I was saying, well, what if 
someone gets true and they're infected. What do you do then? Because if the country is open internally, it's just going to spread like wildfire. And uh, he was like, well, you know, we'll just implement it properly. I kept asking and he just kept saying, <laughs> we just have to implement it properly. And I was going, but Thomas, or Tomas, we're not going to implement it. It doesn't need to be properly. Under your system, it needs to be perfect. And it's not going to be perfect in any country. Certainly not in Ireland. And then, you know, in the first full day of its operation, they lose three people. If we were Chinese, it would be different. I think we all remember those images from the early days back last year of the Chinese welding apartment doors shut. And that was the Chinese way of making sure you didn't leave. Yeah, I, I, I can remember the videos people were taking from inside their apartments as they were being welded shut. And the armed policemen just roaming the streets and the drones and the body bags everywhere. Yeah, we're not going to do that. We're just not. We're just not we're, and if we did do some kind of proper full military lockdown on these places, uh, of the kind that would ensure... Also, you know, people escaped from Stalagluft 19, you know, with dogs and machine gun nests. The chances are they're going to escape from the Crown Plaza. I do, I do like the, the sort of surprise that this happened. And the sort of, we just didn't think people would just leave. Well, yeah. Who could have guessed? It's almost like some people don't want to be there, Michael. And other people are just deeply irresponsible, but surprisingly resourceful. It's almost as if you've got people coming from countries where, you know, the government may take a more robust view about how they enforce the laws or whatever laws they happen to think are worth enforcing at a particular time. And that the, these people have developed a certain resilience about their ability to make choices for themselves, that they don't have maybe the same kind of inbred, I wouldn't say respect that we have for the law, but fear that if they see a hole in the, in, a hole in the, in the wall or a gap in the ditch, they're going to go for it. And it would appear that that has happened, that, that some people have seen the gap in the ditch and they've gone through it. I suppose, Gary, if we're going to be fair, why shouldn't we, we should try? There, it is some kind of a, a, an effort. Um, the list, I, I was going through the list and I was trying to see about, you know, this whole issue with the variants or not. It's hard to see it. I think a lot of it is speculative. I mean, I was looking at I was looking, say, to the South American countries and the African countries, and the, particularly the places that you might have the most faith in the, in the in the numbers, and whether or not these particular countries really are more dangerous than others. Like, if you're just simply looking at it from the point of view of, say, if you're looking at it, say, from the point of view of uh, problems of it, of uh, say the variants, right? Austria is on the list of other countries. They have a list which is Africa and a list of South America, and then there are other countries. And there are two other countries. One is Austria, the other is the United Arab Emirates. Um, the thing about it is, Austria has been, I mean, it, it, depending where you are, Austria now, the Germans, I think, are in the process of removing or have removed Austria from the list. But others are looking at Germany and saying, I don't know if we like Germany, they look at Germany. So, 
These lists are going to be fairly fluid. I'd be, it'll be interesting to see how quickly they change or they don't change depending on how the data changes, you know? One of the interesting things there is, you know, when does mandatory quarantine end? And if you take a zero COVID approach, mandatory quarantines effectively continue until the disease is eradicated worldwide. Because if you open up at any point, it will just get back in. So you constantly have to do it. One other thing that I would note here when I'm talking about them is that we've actually advocated for flight bans and mandatory quarantines last year in relation to particularly Italians. And then as we were coming up to Christmas, when the B117 strain started in England, there was also talk of it then. But I think in those cases, those were particular instances. I mean, with the Italian fans coming over. Rugby, yeah. There was a rugby match which had been cancelled because of COVID, but the the fans had booked their tickets to their their hotels, so they were going to come anyway. Yeah, and they said what Pascal said that you know we can't do that. Think how we would feel if they did it to us, which we heavily mocked at the time, and I still think is possibly the stupidest thing Pascal has ever said. It's also worth in the context just pointing out people aren't aware of the geography of Italian rugby. The homeland of Italian rugby will be played will go from Bergamo over to Verona in Veneto. And in other words, exactly the heart of the hottest of the hotspots of where of COVID in Italy. We are actually I'll say I because I don't want to put words into your mouth, Michael. I said we should have banned those uh, flights and put a travel ban on Italy. That was when we knew basically nothing and everything was totally up in the air. And it was then a case of, okay, we do this to keep it out of the country. But it's gotten into the country. It's going to get into the country. And then with the B117 strain, that was a case of ban those flights at that time, restrict travel there. You won't stop it, but you can slow down the spread. But now now it just seems like, how does this work? When does this end? If you're not, do it properly if you want to do it. But don't half-ass it in a way that makes that is an effective ban on hundreds of millions of people coming to the country, primarily from Africa and South America. When I I can't see it actually achieving its aims, it would be different if I thought they it was strict enough and it was wide enough that it would actually achieve those aims. Instead, it's just going to be a miserable experience for people unlucky to be caught in it. Probably produce relatively little in the way of stopping power. The thing about it, another thing is, and this isn't just us. I mean, this is one of the issues here. This is, this is a have become a big issue for everybody because everybody wants to do something. Everybody is want is desperately trying to think of things that to tamp it down to control it. There's a sense that if we can get the vaccinations going, that's going to help. But we have to stop. We have to stop the variants. We have to try and control the cases in the country. We have to stop the fourth wave. So everybody is desperately trying to think of ways to do it. So, I mean. If you want to just look at—it's not a sentence I often say—but look at look look at Estonia, for example, right? The Estonian approach to this at the moment—they have just removed Ireland, by the way, the Estonians from as, as from their restrictive travel list. But there are the entry restrictions that Estonia is applying are to Austria, yes. But Estonia goes on to Belgium, Bulgaria, the Netherlands, Croatia, Italy, Greece, Cyprus, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Latvia, Malta, Norway, Poland, France, Sweden, Romania, Germany, Slovakia, Slovenia, Finland, Denmark, the Czech Republic and Hungary, Liechtenstein and Switzerland, Andorra, Monaco and San San Marino. The requirement of quarantine does not apply to Spain, Ireland, Iceland and Portugal. 
So, you know, if you're in Estonia, it's much easier to make a list of the countries where you don't have to quarantine than you do. I mean, that's the other thing about this. If we're, if we're talking about variants, and I should have mentioned this earlier when I was talking about limitations on it, variants will spread to other countries. And if this is the case, and let's just put it this way, the Irish government has not responded to changing circumstances with a great deal of speed. So what will happen, if it has not already happened, is these variants will spread to countries that are not covered, and by the time the Irish government decides to add them to this list, it'll be too late anyway. Assuming that it wouldn't be too late because of all the other things. Which it almost certainly will be. But you get what I'm saying. There's layers of failure here. Absolutely. Uh, and for clarity, it's not that Estonia is letting everybody else in. In fact, non-essential travel to Estonia is permitted only from arrivals from Australia, South Korea, Rwanda. Rwanda, by the way, which is on our list. The Estonians are letting you in if you're from Rwanda. Singapore, Thailand, New Zealand, without restrictions. Everybody else is restricted. But it's almost like they did the system I said just before this you would implement if you actually wanted to achieve something with this policy. It is almost like that, isn't it? Which would sort of indicate that that's pretty obvious. Or I and the Estonians are both wrong in exactly the same way, despite coming from immensely different cultures. <laughs> They're very fond of choral singing in Estonia, you know. Well, I'm not sure if I can get behind that. And the other hand, I mean, I don't think the mandatory quarantines will work in the end, regardless of... Uh, how heavy they are, I think the only way you can actually use them is to give yourself time to vaccinate. Because as I said, that is the only game in town to the governments, and it's the only way we're getting out of this nightmare at any point. And the, 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 the thing has only been going on for a, a day or two, and already like, we have this case of this family, right, that's coming in from Perth, right? Uh, a, a husband and wife... She's a she's a nurse. She wants she's going back to work in a, in a hospital in Sligo. And God knows, we don't need nurses. He's a truck driver. They've been uh, living in Perth for the last five years, which she described as the safest place in the world. Perth had one case of COVID in the last year, and that was in a quarantine hotel, which sounds pretty good. Um, the reason they're in quarantine is because they passed through the United Arab Emirates, right? And that was where they had to presumably, I don't know, they were on the ground, they were changing planes or refueling. And the Emirates is one of the two countries, along with Austria, which is on the other list. And they entered the airport building for 45 minutes to visit an empty McDonald's restaurant. Uh, now, a couple of people have been saying, Gary, rather unkind things about these people, you know, basically, fuck them. I think I saw a university lecturer say fuck them, and then follow up by saying fuck them again, just so you couldn't, you know, just so you knew it wasn't a mistake. They haven't tried to escape or abscond. And while they feel it's unfair that they should have to, to go through this, when they're saying they have a house in Sligo, I think it's Sligo, Eastgate, where they're perfectly willing to go and quarantine whatever under you know, their own auspices. But maybe they can't be trusted. But their point is that you know, the, the, the conditions in which they're, they're being kept are just unreasonable. Now, it's worth pointing out before any... Which is something that didn't seem to be getting through to a lot of the people who are feeling unsympathetic. Was, they're paying €5,000 for this. This isn't being... They're not, this isn't the state. They're paying 5000 quid of a hotel bill to stay in these fairly low 
standard conditions. I imagine if it had been left up to them to find uh, accommodation for two weeks, in a, that they would have been able to find something that would have been a little bit more humane, a little bit more comfortable for a family of five people for €5,000 at a time. Do you know what, Gary? I'm told the hotels in Dublin are not massively overbooked at the moment or that the apartment hotels are even B&Bs. Tourism apparently is not is not burdened out of it in Dublin. It is possible to get a hotel room or two or even apartments or suites. I'm going to take a different approach on this. I think the response to the family has been good. I mean, it has been a positive thing because I look forward to the day when Irish culture decides that not only is it enough to do things, but you don't get to complain about them either when you're doing them. And I think that's just that would just be a massive improvement for everyone if you know, it wasn't just that you had to obey the law, it was that you couldn't complain about the law. Just on the, the actual the actual exemptions, Michael. Where so you've your full exemptions where you just don't need to uh, go into mandatory quarantine at all. You also have partial exemptions where you can leave your place of quarantine when necessary to perform your essential function, only as long as strictly required. Have you looked at the list of reasons you can actually leave your quarantine for? So here's, here's one. Journalists carrying out their professional functions. A passenger who is participating in a sporting event. A member of staff at an international organisation or person invited carrying out functions required for the proper functioning of such organisations and which cannot be carried out remotely. I would be very interested on the definition of international organisation there. Or a person required to carry out essential repair, maintenance, construction or uh, safety of critical transport infrastructure, critical utility infrastructure and so on and so on. There's actually on, on that point of construction and what construction has been allowed to stay open there's some really interesting designations that have been given to particular building sites to allow them to keep going that um i mean i don't i don't hold it against the construction companies i'd say they're desperate to keep every site they can open but um some of them have definitely put in the work to get some of those sites deemed to be particular things and I can only applaud it. So, Michael, just before we close up, there is a new political poll. We'll just touch on that, I think, quickly. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it is yet more good news for uh, Milan Martin and for Fianna Fáil. This is a Red Sea poll, uh, Business Post. Finnegal thirty plus one, Sinn Fein twenty nine, no movement. Fianna Fáil eleven minus two, All Independents eleven minus one, Green Party five plus two. Social Democrats 5 minus 1, Labour Party 4, no movement, um, into 2%, no movement, other parties 1% plus 1, and then People Before Profit, Solidarity, or Solidarity People Before Profit, or whatever they are now, 2%, no movement. I was talking to a, a lad, Michael, old Fianna Fáil lad, there last week, before this poll came out, and he put the thought to me that he thought Fianna Fáil as as the political party of the Irish people. It was just done. And he made the comment that we were able to survive, we obviously being Fianna Fáil, the public thinking that we just fucked the country deliberately, that we caused the recession, that we did it. It was all us, no one else, it was all us. We survived that. 
we're not going to survive Mihalmar. It has that smack about it. And the thing, when you look at that number, the thing is, because because of any voting system would be the same, if you take people before profit, it, I say that it's not just it's not just money, it's not just PR, is what I mean. People who are profit tends to vote, have its vote uh, concentrate in, in in certain areas, which means the two percent uh, of a national poll can translate into quite a number of seats, far more seats than it, you would expect for a two percent poll. If you had the same kind of concentration of vote at eleven percent, you could expect to get. If you're like if you're like say people before profit, you could expect to get chunk of seats. The problem is Fianna Fáil is everywhere. So it's like the butter is being spread out incredibly thinly across the country. And once you hit around 11, 10, 11% for a party like Fianna Fáil, when you're running candidate or candidates in every constituency in the country, you're looking at a, a, a potential tsunami. You could... Uh, you talk to different people who do the numbers and they crunch them and they come up with all sorts of different scenarios. But one chap who's not bad on these things would say to me, you know, if you went through constituency by constituency, it's perfectly feasible to come up with them at, at, that, at that level of support. It's perfectly feasible to see them on a bad day coming out with 12 seats, which would be once upon a time labour on a bad day. I mean, it's difficult with something like this. Fianna Fáil have an immense amount of advantages, an immense amount of historical disadvantages on any movement in a different direction. I do recall saying when they went in with Fine Gael that this was going to be a death pact and one of these parties <laughs> was likely not coming out of it. Yeah. And it's nice to be right, Michael, or at least moving in the direction of being right. And the thing is, once upon a time, when you looked at a, a group of parties coalescing, and you predicted, oh, this is not going to be not coalescing in, in coalescing in government, in, 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 not in actually merging. Historically, Fianna Fáil had gone into power with many, many parties. But like Typhoid Mary, they passed the infection but survived the disease, but left a scatter of dying parties behind them. For once, it looks like Fianna Fáil may be the one that dies as a result of the deadly embrace. Fine Gael, they're stuck. They, they're there. They're 29, 30, 31. Now, it's worth pointing out, Gary, I suppose, this is the, this is the worst poll for Fianna Fáil. If you compare them to the other polls, I mean, this is by a distance their worst performing poll. And consistently so. The thing is, even if this poll isn't terribly accurate and the other polls are, you don't have that much space. The interesting thing about the Irish proportional representation system is that there are basically points in it when you poll upwards and downwards. And if you get above those points, you suddenly start to gain seats at accelerated rates over what you would expect from half a percent point. But it's just because it just pushes you that little bit ahead. Falling like this produces pretty much the inverse of that, that you'll start losing seats at an accelerated rate. Oh, at a certain, at, at a certain point, you get, uh, over a certain point, you get a bonus. You get a bonus tally. You go the other way around, you... You, you, you start you start losing seats where you shouldn't normally lose them. And not that long ago, Gary, it was almost unthinkable that there would be a constituency without a Fianna Fáil TD. I mean, if you're talking about multi-seaters, 
you you would assume you you'll be talking about two TDs very often, like in five seizures, there'd always be two TDs, unless it was an unusual constituency. There might be the odd place in Dublin where every so often a particularly difficult constituency where Fianna Fáil wouldn't return. Now, in Dublin, say, it's far more the question of which constituencies return TDs or might return a Fianna Fáil TD. And increasingly around the country, you're looking at five seaters where they're looking instead of one, where once upon a time they might run four candidates, they're seriously thinking about running one candidate. It is a, a, in the space of ten years, effectively, it's a completely transformed political map. Finnafall put everything into breaking Dublin, and they let parts of the party decay in order to do that. I haven't seen this poll's breakdown in Dublin, but I know in the February Red Sea poll, they were polling at 9% in Dublin. If you, like, Michal Martin chose that strategy. He directed the entirety of the party to it. Many of the choices he made were in order to further that strategy. And at the end of it all, you're on 9% in Dublin. Uh, Gary, I think at this point, it's not, you could reasonably say that it's hard to imagine that if for 10 years they had actually completely ignored Dublin, it's hard to imagine that they would that they would be that much worse off. I would say if that had happened, if they had ignored Dublin and they had stayed more like Fianna Fáil, as we had known it, Sinn Féin would not be on 29%. If they had... When I say ignored Dublin, I don't really mean ignored Dublin, as, as I said... But rather, they had ignored a certain kind of politics which they believed was going to crack a certain kind of vote in Dublin. If they had stuck to their sense of their identity, in some way, I mean, people might laugh at the idea of Fianna Fáil and authenticity, but if they had in some sense stayed authentic, I think that there would have been a certain quorum of votes in Dublin that would have eventually responded to that authenticity. Finnafall are polling, and this is actually quite interesting. On the February uh, Red Sea poll that I saw, they were polling at 12% in the ABC1 social category and 12% in the C2DE category. That is not how Finnafall would traditionally have polled. They would have polled like Sinn Féin, which was 22% ABC1, 37 C2DE. Finnafall has lost all of its working class and industrial voters. And that was the key to its success uh, under Bertie. More people in the C2DE category will vote for Finnegale than will vote for Finnafall. And historically, I don't think it would come as a surprise to people that historically that was not really how that went. No, I mean, it always had actually a it had a substantial working class vote enough. I mean, Irish 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 voting patterns on in, in until in into the twenty fourth century were kind of unusual. They didn't break down into niche, uh, into neat class blocks or demographic blocks. Or it, it was more complicated than that. If anybody's interested, there's an old an old book now, but from a historical point perspective, it's interesting. Written by a guy, a Canadian political scientist called Carty. Uh, called Parish Pump and Politics and it goes through the, the weirdness of Irish voting patterns but certainly if you look at the that kind of working class that the breakdown in that working class vote in, for Fianna Fáil particularly in Dublin is dramatic because 
there had been, for example, there had been a traditional working class Dublin Fine Gael vote, but it had becoming increasingly, increasingly marginalised, and the the, the 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 Mitchell brothers would have been regarded as kind of the last kick. No, there have been, and certainly people I'm sure would identify as being working class, whatever that means, uh, who have stood and have have taken seats for Fine Gael since then in Dublin, but it has become less part of the identity of Fine Gael in Dublin. Fine Gael has become increasingly that D2, D2, D6, D4, D6 kind of feeling to it. Whereas under Bertie, and we're always going back to Bertie, I know, but under Bertie, you know, what they, the breakfast roll man, the white van man, whatever you want to call it, they really responded to Bertie. Bertie knew how to talk and he understood how to talk to that voting demographic. He understood the, he big thing, he understood their aspirations. Who is talking to the aspirational working class in Ireland, in fact? And to the extent anybody is, Fine Gael is doing it more successfully than Fianna Fáil. They are. Man. Actually, Sinn Féin, some of the stuff that they've done in the area, I don't think the policies will work, but they're clearly making a quite concerted effort there. But, I mean, when you look at this, Michael, so let's take, this is the February Red Sea poll. Social Democrats are polling at the same level as Fine Fáil in the 18 to 34 category. In the 35 to 54 category, Social Democrats are on 5%, Fianna Fáil is on 9 In 35 to 54. There are everything about the, everything about the polls, when you break them down bit by bit, is bad news for Fianna Fáil. But what is really bad news is when you break down the age demographics. Because the only time... That they start to get into more substantial numbers is when you when you start going over fifty and then over sixty five, and that's not that's never good news for anybody in any in any organisation when most of your voters are over fifty and they're failing dramatically to attract young voters. They are, but I think I think so much of this came from the Dublin strategy and attempting to implement it and. In doing so, they absolutely failed, but they also brought in more and more policies that alienated the people who would have traditionally voted for them because it was very clear that they weren't really who Michal Martin's Fianna Fáil was interested in. It's not where it wanted to be, and they weren't the sort of voters that they thought they needed. And like You see this in branding constantly. You'll change something on, and you'll look and go, well, if we could get these new markets, we'd be making so much more money. And you change it to get them and you suddenly find that your old customers are gone because they don't like what you've become or it just doesn't, like it's fine, maybe. It's just not what they want. The problem is that Coke went back to classic Coke pretty quickly. We're 10 years into this and we're, and even if they did go back to classic Coke, I'm not sure how successful that could even be now. It is a wonderful thing to see an organisation in real time decide it would be awkward to change and that they would rather just die well <laughs> i don't suppose that's how they see it but that's how it's that's how it's working out no like we've, we've had this conversation before michael this has been going badly for years and we've been talking about it for years both on the podcast and just in general and at a certain point if you don't make the choice to change it it's not even the fault of martin anymore it's your fault and the party has let him do this, and they've let him do it for so long, and now there suddenly seems to be this realization of we are actually in a really, really bad place. That's that's absolutely right. 
it's Martin's fault to a point. But when you have a leader and he and you and he keeps insisting on 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 an approach on a strategy, and it becomes clear that the strategy is not working. In fact, that it's bleeding you slowly or quickly to death, and you fail to respond to that, then it's ultimately it's your fault. For years and years, it was a it was a very simple metric with Fianna Fáil and their leaders. A lot of the time, they didn't like their leaders. Behind doors, they would be vitriolic about them. They would hate them. In public, they would be supportive. But the only thing ultimately that they cared about was whether did they win, did they give them power, and if you won, you would be forgiven everything. And that made them a very successful political machine. They wanted to win. They wanted power. That was what they were in existence for. I wouldn't say this. I said for years, I thought Mihal Martin would never be Taoiseach. And more exactly, I thought he should never be Taoiseach because I think he, I thought he'd be a disaster. But he became Taoiseach. Now, granted, it was in a pretty unusual way. And I think I can asterisk that, but I was wrong about that. And maybe I'll be wrong about this. Maybe he'll turn it around. But I don't get a sense <laughs> that there's a lot of new ideas coming down the road. Gary, as regards the capacity at this, at this juncture of Michal Martin being responsible for turning around Fianna Fáil, I think he has as much chance of doing that as he has of turning around the, the, sh- the container ship that at the moment is stuck in the middle of the Suez you know, Canal. At, as we were talking about him, that was all that came to mind. I wonder if he feels a kinship with the ship. And I think that a lot, a lot of Fianna Fáil feel like the little, that, you know, the man in the digger. I'd say there are, there are, there are, there are young, bright people working away there in Mount Street on f- columns of figures and strategies and proposals and constituency analysis. And I'd say at this stage, they probably just feel like the, the man in the digger on the Suez Canal engaged in a, a lot of activity. People are paying a lot of attention, but it's not going to do any bloody good at all. On the plus side, now we know, you know we have a wonderful system or just a wonderful symbol for Michal Martin's uh, Finafal. We will be back on Wednesday. I think Wednesday will bring us out of this month entirely. We'll be in the second quarter. Yes, so Wednesday is the 31st. So by the show next Sunday, we will have the final figures for how the government did in reaching its target of 1.25 million vaccinations in March. The excitement is almost unbearable. Do you remember, folks, to put your clocks back uh, if you haven't already and you've wondered why everything is late or early? I can't remember which. But anyway, put your clocks back and we will be back on the 31st. Uh, Until then, mind yourselves. All the best.